from Los Angeles, California, the entertainment capital of the world, it's the 80s Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Thank you for listening today. Last week, we talked about Martha Coolidge and her 1983 comedy, Valley Girl, which celebrated the 40th anniversary of its release this past Saturday. Today, we're going to continue talking about Martha Coolidge's 1980 movies with her follow-up effort, Joy of Sex. And as always, before we get to the main story, there's some backstory to the story that we need to visit first. In 1972, British scientist Alex Comfort published the titillatingly titled The Joy of Sex. If you know the book, you know it's just a bunch of artful drawings of a man and woman performing various sexual acts, a how-to manual for the curious and adventurous. Set up to mimic cooking books like The Joy of Cooking, The Joy of Sex covered the gamut of sexual acts and would spend more than a year on the New York Times bestseller list, including three months at the top of the list. It wasn't the kind of book anyone could possibly conceive a major Hollywood studio might ever be interested in to making a movie. And you'd be right. Sort of. When a producer named Tom Moore bought the movie rights to the book in 1975 for $100,000 and 20% of the film's profit, Moore really only wanted the title because he thought a movie called Joy of Sex would be a highly commercial prospect to the millions of people who had purchased the book over the years, especially since porn chic was still kind of in at the time. In 1976, Moore would team with Paramount Pictures to further develop the project. They would hire British comedian, actor, and writer Dudley Moore to structure the movie as a series of short vignettes, not unlike Woody Allen's Everything You Want to Know About Sex But We're Afraid to Ask. Moore was more interested in writing a single story about someone not unlike himself in his early 40s coming to grips with being sexually hung up during the era of free love. Moore and the studio could not come into agreement over the direction of the story, and Moore would, maybe not so ironically, sign on to play the character not unlike himself in his early 40s, coming to grips with being sexually hung up during the era of free love, in Blake Edwards' 10. Still wanting to pursue the idea of a movie as a series of short vignettes, not unlike Woody Allen's Everything You Always Want to Know About Sex What We're Afraid to Ask, Paramount next approached the British comedy troupe Monty Python to work on it since that's basically what they did for 45 episodes of their BBC TV show between 1969 and 1974. But since they had just found success with their first movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they decided to concentrate their efforts on their next movie project. In 1978, Paramount hired actor and comedian Charles Grodin to write the script, telling him it could literally be about anything. Grodin, one of the stealthiest funny people to ever walk the earth, had written a movie before, an adaptation of the Gerald I. Brown novel Eleven Harrow House, but he found himself unable to think of anything, finding the ability to write anything he wanted as long as it could be somehow tied to that title, to be an albatross around his neck. When Grodin finally turned in a script a few months later, Paramount was horrified to discover he had written a movie about a screenwriter who was having trouble writing a Hollywood movie based on a sex manual. The studio passed and released Grodin from his contract. In 1985, Grodin was able to get that screenplay made into a movie called Movers and Shakers. But despite having a cast that included Grodin, Walter Matthau, Gilda Radner, Bill Macy, and Vincent Gardenia, as well as cameos from Steve Martin and Penny Marshall, the film bombed. Badly. After the success of The Blues Brothers, John Belushi was hired to star in Joy of Sex to be directed by Penny Marshall and what was supposed to be her directing debut, 
produced by Maddie Simmons, the publisher of National Lampoon, who was looking for another potential hit film to put its name on after their success with Animal House, from a script written by National Lampoon writer John Hughes, which would have been his first produced screenplay. Hughes' screenplay still would be structured as a series of short vignettes, not unlike Woody Allen's Everything You Always Want to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, but Belushi would pass away before filming could begin. Penny Marshall would make her directing debut four years later with the Whoopi Goldberg movie Jumpin' Jack Flash, while Hughes's first produced a screenplay, the National Lampoon's class reunion, would actually begin production four weeks before Belushi died. Belushi kept getting the production start date for Joy of Sex pushed back because he was working on a screenplay for a movie he really wanted to make, a diamond smuggling caper called Noble Rot, which Paramount had agreed to make if Belushi would make Joy of Sex first. After that, Paramount would hire the unlikely team of screenwriting teacher Sid Field and shock jock Don Imus to try their hand at it before going back to Hughes, who at one point turned in a draft that was 148 pages long. After the success of Porky's around this time, Paramount would have the script rewritten again, this time by the Outsiders as screenwriter Kathleen Rowell, trying to make it into a raunchy comedy. Amy Heckerling, the director of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, was approached to direct, but she would turn it down because she didn't want to get pigeonholed as a raunchy sex comedy director. The studio needed to get the film in production by the end of May 1983, where the rights to the book and the title would revert back to its author. After Valley Girl started to get some good buzz just before release, Paramount would approach Martha Coolidge to direct. Although the budget for the film would only be around $5 million, Coolidge would earn far more than the $5,000 she made for Valley Girl, so even if she wasn't too thrilled with the script, it was good money. Maybe she should have waited. The film would begin production in Los Angeles and Santa Monica beginning on May 31, 1983, literally the day before the movie rights would have reverted back to the author, and Coolidge would only be given 26 days to film it. It also didn't help that the production was working under Paramount's television division, and the producer, Frank Konigsberg, had never produced a feature film before. This final version of the script she would be working with, credited to Catherine Roll and first-time screenwriter J.J. Salter, would be the 19th draft written over the course of eight years, and wouldn't quite be the raunch fest Paramount was hoping for, but they were literally out of time. To try and make things as comfortable for herself as possible, Coolidge would hire a number of actors and crew members from Valley Girl and tried to shoot the film as straight as possible, even with the studio's request for lots of gratuitous nudity. Michelle Mayrink, one of Julie's Valley Girl friends in Coolidge's previous film, would star as Leslie, a high school senior who tries to lose her virginity when she mistakenly believes she only has six weeks to live, alongside her Valley Girl co-stars Cameron Dye, Colleen Camp, and Heidi Holliker. Also on board would be Ernie Hudson, who would go straight from making this film into making Ghostbusters, and Christopher Lloyd, who was still a couple of years away from starring as Doc Brown, as Leslie's dad, a coach at her high school. Coolidge's saving grace was that despite the pressure to have scenes of nubile young co-eds running naked down the school hall, for no good reason, the core of the story was about two teenagers who, while trying to learn about sex, would discover and fall in love with each other. Paramount would set the film for an April 13, 1984 release, even before Coolidge turned in her first cut of the film, 
But when she did, that's when the proverbial poop hit the proverbial fan. Coolidge made the movie she wanted to make, a sweet love story, even with some scenes of gratuitous and unnecessary nudity, which was not the movie Paramount wanted, even if that was the script they approved. Coolidge's relationship with the studio further soured when the first test screening of the film turned out to be a disaster, especially with teenage girls and women who loved the love story at the center of the film but hated the completely gratuitous and unnecessary nudity. Coolidge would be fired off the film. The television and film departments at Paramount would get into a vicious finger-pointing argument about who was to blame for this mess and how they were going to fix it. And Maddie Simmons would pay Paramount $250,000 to have the National Lampoon name removed from the film, claiming the film did not represent what the magazine had originally signed up for. Paramount would cancel the April 1984 release date while hiring two new editors to try and salvage the mess they felt they were given. The Directors Guild offered to allow Coolidge to take her name off the film and have it credited to Alan Smithy, but she would decide to leave her name on it. Even if the film bombed, it was another directing credit to her name, which could still help her get future jobs. When the new editors finished their work on the film, they had whittled down Coolidge's original version that ran 115 minutes into a barely cohesive 93-minute mess, and the studio decided to release the film on August 3rd. In the 80s, the entire month of August was pretty much considered a dumping ground for movies, as families were often eschewing going to the movies for their last moments of summer fun before their kids had to go back to school. Opening on 804 screens, Joy of Sex would open in ninth place, grossing an anemic $1.9 million in its first three days. Ghostbusters, in its ninth week of release, was still in first place with $6.5 million, and would also get outgrossed by Gremlins, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and the Karate Kid, all three having been released in May or June. After a second weekend where the film would lose nearly 20% of its theaters and 55% of its first-week audience, Paramount would stop tracking the film. Its final reported ticket sales would be just $3.69 million. Because I am cursed with the ability to remember the most mundane things from nearly 40 years ago while being unable to remember where I left a screwdriver yesterday, I still remember seeing The Joy of Sex. It was on the number one screen at the Skyview Drive-In in Santa Cruz. It was the A title playing with a double bill of Cheech and Chong's is Still Smokin', which had not done very well when it had been released in May. My friends and I would head out to the theater. Dick and some friends piled into his Impala, me and some friends in my AMC Pacer, with lawn chairs and frosty beverages in the trunks, ready to completely rip apart this film that we had heard was really bad and rip it apart we did. I think there were maybe ten cars on our side of the drive-in. Plenty of room for a bunch of drunken teenagers to be far away from everybody else and be obnoxious jerks. In 1984, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have easy access to the industry newspapers where we may have heard all the troubles with the production. We just knew the film stunk something foul, and we had one of our most fun evenings at the movies destroying it in our own inimitable way and I wasn't going to give the movie another chance for this podcast. It, it stunk. It, there's just no two ways about it. But now I'm more forgiving of Martha Coolidge, just knowing how impossible of a situation she was put in. Ironically, the debacle that was Joyous Sex would be part of the reason I enjoyed Coolidge's next film, 1985's Real Genius, so much, because Joyous Sex was still fresher in my mind than Valley Girl. But we'll talk more about Real Genius on our next episode. Thank you for joining us. 
Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, The 80s Movie Podcast, for extra materials about the joy of sex. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.